Hello, I'm Marcus Rilton, and this is the Scots Care Podcast. Scots Care is the only charity dedicated to helping disadvantaged Scots in London through a range of support, including mental health therapy, financial grants, advocacy, sheltered housing for older Scots, job coaching, social events, befriending, and support for children and families. The charity has been running for 400 years to help break the cycle of poverty experienced by some Scots in London. In this series of the Scots Care podcast, I'll be chatting to celebrities and supporters of the charity that have forged a life often away from Scotland and about the ups and downs that can bring. Joining me today is professional boxer Hannah Rankin. Hannah became Scotland's first ever female world champion in 2019 when she won the IBO Super Welterweight title. She then added the WBA Super Welterweight title to that in November 2021. And as if that's not enough incredible talent for one person, Hannah is also a professional bassoonist, having learned music on her mother's knee since she was a young child. A boxer's life is a busy one, and it's taken a fair while to pin her down for a chat. But today, we finally got there. Scott's Care. Hi, Hannah. Hello. <laughs> Thanks for joining the Scott's Care podcast. Oh, no, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to join you. Oh, I know, I know you're so busy. And you know what? We've had some great guests. We've had a guy from Star Wars and we've had Christopher Brookmeyer, best-selling crime author, a, a clinical psychologist about the secret of happiness. And wow. I tell I tell my friends about these, oh, this is who I'm chatting with today. And they'll go, oh, aye, fair enough, aye. And you're the first person when I said, I'm chatting to Hannah Rankin, they've said, oh, excellent. Can you ask her this? <laughs> Well, that's, that's cool to know that. <laughs> so I've noted a couple of questions down and I thought, oh, I could try and cleverly work them into the interview as if they were mine. But once I come to them, I'll just say, this is from Rory. This is from Neil. And that way they, they get their answers. Yes. <laughs> no where, problem. So where did you grow up? Um, I grew up uh, in Loch Lomond. Um, my family have a farm at the top of Glenlass. So um, I went to primary school in, in Lust, the tiny, tiny little village there. And um, yeah, that's where, where I've lived my whole life until I moved down to London to study. It's beautiful there. We used to go on school trips there when I was a kid. I know. It's like I always say to people, when it's sunny at home, I wouldn't be anywhere else in the world because it's absolutely stunning. But it's only about five days of the year. So <laughs> well, this, this, <clears throat> this is it, because I always think because I'm, I'm based in London and I always say to my wife, oh, I do get homesick. I still get homesick after 20 odd years in London. Yeah. And she says, yeah, but the weather, going home to the weather, you know, and that's especially around Loch Lomond when it's bonny, it's lovely. But the rain but and the when it's wet, it's wet. <laughs> yeah do you remember take the high road do you remember the scottish soap um, yeah i used to film it in Lass, and it's very strange because obviously we used to have a lot of american tourists come to Lass, and um the poor people that lived there i think they thought the houses were part of the set i don't think they actually thought it was uh people's genuine houses that they lived in so there's often people peering into their houses looking around you know <laughs> thinking it was just part of a, a film set but actually you know it's real life for them <laughs> that's brilliant isn't it you moved to london to study music how long ago was that so I moved down here in oh, 2012, 2013. So a good while ago then. Yeah, I've been there for quite a while. Now. I've been here quite a while now. It feels like my second home, really. Um, I moved down to do my master's at the World Academy of Music. And what came first? Was it the music or the boxing? Oh, music. 
yeah, I've been I've been involved in music right from day one, really. My granddad was a music teacher when he was at school and um, my mum always encouraged music in the house. She played the piano and the French horn and the cello. So myself and my sisters, we were all encouraged from a very young age, actually. And one of my earliest memories is actually sitting on my mum's knee at the piano, uh, singing songs with her and listening. You play the bassoon. Do, do, yes. you go straight, do you go straight in as a bassoon player or do you graduate to bassoon? <laughs> no, actually, so uh, first of all, obviously started on piano, um, but, you know, I, I was never very great at the piano. It was one of those things where I, I find it quite frustrating with the two hands moving around and everything. My sisters were much better at it than me. Um, but then I moved on to the flute because uh, I wanted that my granddad suggested that we wanted to maybe do some orchestral playing. So, you know, I moved on to the flute. My sisters went on to string instruments. And then when I was in my... Uh, well, it must have been my fourth year at secondary school um, and a lovely old lady donated a bassoon to our school uh, because she was horrified there wasn't one in the orchestra <laughs> so oh. she donated one and I thought I want to play that it's different and uh, I'm fed up of being one of like 400 flute players <laughs> so I picked up the bassoon and instantly knew that was the instrument for me I just fell in love with it. It is a great sound isn't it? Yeah. Now, maybe it's my naivety but when I first started researching you, because I knew you as a boxer, and then it came out that you, you played bassoon at a very high level, and maybe it's wrong of me to think, what, a, what an odd mix. Are people surprised that you are a boxer? And like, if, if somebody said to me, oh, do you know she also plays the drums? I'd have come and went, oh, okay, she plays the drums, but the bassoon seems such, I don't know, they seem <laughs> such juxtaposed things, don't they? Um, I suppose so, if you look at it from that angle but then for me it makes a lot of sense and I explain this to people quite often because I do get that are you mad those two things do not go together at all yeah. but um being like being a bassoonist and being an orchestral musician uh, you have to enjoy performing often I'm on stage with an orchestra or a quintet or something like that and I enjoy performing you know I'm under the lights I'm there to create a memorable event for people coming to listen um you know basically play with their emotions hope they like they enjoy the highs and the lows of the music and it's exactly the same thing in boxing you know you're getting to the boxing ring to entertain people you're in there to perform and it's just um, it's just a bit different in fact that the lights go down and it's just you and one other person and you're gonna have a fight but it's still an entertainment aspect of it um and both things require such dedication and discipline when it comes to the practice side of things of so for, for me they actually work very well together. And if you look back in history, um, in martial arts particularly, uh, there's a strong connection to music all the way through that. So actually, they, they do make quite a lot of sense. But um, I think people think with the bassoon, it's quite, it's quite a serious classical instrument. So yeah. I wouldn't couldn't possibly cross over into some sort of uh, violent sport. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's more like beautiful violence, I suppose. That, that's kind of how I see it. I like that, beautiful violence. It's a nice phrase, isn't it? Your mum passed away a few years ago, and was—is this true that you? One of the reasons you took up boxing was to deal with what your mum was going through at the time as a kind of outlet for you. Well, actually, I moved down to London to do my masters, and that first term, everything was going really well. I'd actually found a gym specifically to do combat sports in because I'd actually got back into being fit again and, and doing that up in Glasgow at the end of my undergraduate and I actually went back into Thai boxing but then I met my coach and he introduced me to boxing and I, I was doing that all the way through my first term it's, it's when I got back home 
home at Christmas that year that I found out my mum, she'd just been diagnosed with cancer. And so it happened to have just started prior to that. But during those six months when uh, she started to decline, unfortunately, she passed away at the end of that. Boxing became a huge a huge sort of um, hugely important part of my life because it was a whole different world that wasn't associated to my mum because obviously doing my music I was very close to my mum she was my number one supporter she came to all of my concerts and things so it was kind of like a break from that connection to her obviously music's very emotional as well so it, it was kind of nice to be able to go to the gym and it was probably the only place where I could become so tired that for a split second I probably couldn't think about my mum being ill yeah, I and, get that. Um, I understand the separation there. It's probably absolutely. something that's necessary. Yeah, and I had a sort of a different family of people at the gym. And I think most people who do boxing will tell you that it is like a family when you join a boxing gym. Uh, people are very friendly. Everyone works together. And uh, yeah, it was just a different bunch of people to, to be around. And uh, it's probably the reason that I put so much into my boxing career now, because at the time, like probably at the lowest point of my life, most difficult time, boxing was there for me and it supported me. And, you know, I, I think I owe it a lot because it helped with the frustration and the anger and the upset. Um, so, yeah, I think that's probably why I put so much into it now. Your dad's a big supporter and because yeah. I, I saw a photograph of you when you won the IBO Super <laughs> yeah. Welterweight title and your dad was in the ring. And yeah. the, the, the look on his face is just brilliant. It was such pride. But I yeah. kind of wonder, having a daughter myself, does does your dad ever worry about you? Or does he, your dad think, oh, my Lord, there's somebody else trying to punch my daughter's head in here? I think so, especially as he's got a little bit older and I've gone further into my career, obviously got further up into much harder fights and things. Uh, you know, it's definitely stressful for him. I'm one of his three little girls, you know. So at the end of the day, of course, he's going to be stressed. And I think he's got to the stage now where he just kind of, takes his glasses down so you can't fully see everything <laughs> you know what he's what's going on in the ring but he trusts my team and that's the most important thing you know I've got a great team around me and like my coach Noel is always in contact with my dad my dad always drops him a message in fight week just to check how I am I think he thinks I don't know about this but you know <laughs> <laughs> but yeah no I think he, he gets sort of reassurance and comfort from the fact he's a great connection to the team around me and they're always keeping him in the loop about how things are going so yeah, any athlete that I've spoken to for the for the record the podcast recordings, I've spoken about the coach. I, I had a chat with Martin Perry, the Paralympian yeah. table tennis guy, and he was talking about Terry, his coach. And he said, "Without your coach, you're just nothing." I mean, is yeah. that the same for? Is that why? I mean, you actually have it. When I email you, I'm emailing Team Ranking. So, is your coach fundamental to you? Absolutely fundamental. I wouldn't be here where I am now without my coach, because when I decided I wanted to take up boxing as a career and go into it and see how far I could go, you know, it was my coach that was the person right by my side. And he's been by my side from the very beginning, a white collar fight that I did for charity right through to me being a double world champion now. So, you know, they are absolutely instrumental in, in where you get to. And especially in boxing, your, your coach knows you inside out. And fundamentally, at the end of the day, should you be in a hard fight? and you get taking some injuries they're the person that could ultimately save your life because they'll see any sort of changes or things that you know they're not used to seeing having seen you every single day in the gym um and also you know they're there for the highs they're there for the lows and it's like an unbreakable team and I always have everything under team ranking because at the end of the day I wouldn't get to fight night without my team around me. They're the people that get me to the fitness levels I need to be at, get me to weight, help me with my mental training, you know, and put me through my paces and get my skill levels to where they need to be. So at the end of the day, I'm the tip of the spear. They're everything prior to that. Scott's Care. 
helping to break the cycle of deprivation for Scots in London. Here's my first question from my friend Rory. Yeah. He, he's been doing white collar boxing and he, he lost a load of weight over the last couple of years and he looks fantastic now. He's really trim. Congratulations, Rory. Yeah, he's done well. And so I'm just going to read it out to you. Rory says, what gives you the extra edge for a win? Is it solely skill or the drive to want to win more at all costs within reason? Is there no room for general niceness? Do you need to just go in and be brutal within the rules to secure the win? Well, I think when it comes when it comes to it, you can be one of the most skilled boxers on the planet. But if you haven't got that drive to win or that belief in yourself that you're going to win, then you probably won't. And if you think you're going to fail, you will, because that's just how it is. It's in boxing, if you think you're going to miss and you think you're going to get hit, you will get hit mm. <laughs> because you don't commit to your punches. You don't commit to what you're doing. So I think it's about commitment. It's about belief in yourself. And ultimately, if you, there's that sort of will to win. And you've seen some of the most amazing fights out there. You know, at the end of the day, it comes down to who wants it more. And that is really how it works out. And this is why boxing is so exciting, because it's true one on one combat you know it goes all the way back to sort of gladiatorial times um and there's something special about that there's nothing else there's nobody else in the ring going to help you and it's truly how much inside you definitely want to win over the person in front of you regarding that you know you're talking about if you think you're going to fail you're going to fail yeah do you, do you remember when is it patricia burkout not berg holt yes. knocked you down yeah and that was the first time you had ever been knocked down yeah how does that, because I, I read that and I thought, whoa, how does that rattle you? And how do you get up and win from that point? Because if you've never been knocked down to get put on your bum for the very first time, <laughs> must be a massive thing. It was, you know, and at the time I remember thinking, I can't believe that just happened. I was just like, what? <laughs> you know, that way you just never believe it's going to happen because you, you're aware of the fact it can happen. I think that's, I should say that. But then you're just like, oh. What it does happen is a surprise and it's how you react to that. So in my mind, I was just like, oh, I've got to get back up and fix this problem. And that was the first thing that came through in my mind. I was like, right, I'm back up, I'm sorted out and I'm, I'll go back there and I'm going to win from this point onwards. And I, I lost a controversial decision in that fight, but it's that drive to, to win and to beat your opponent. And also, no matter what the situation is, to come back and get on top again, that's the important side of it. That's it. It's the mental toughness. What is it Rocky yeah. says? It's not how hard you can hit, it's how hard you can get hit. Yep. Yeah, keep going. <laughs> yeah. Now, the, when we're talking about the IBO Super Welterweight title that you won, yeah, achievement, history moment, first Scottish female world champion. Yeah. But you'd fought prior twice in the USA, but am I right in thinking those were not really at weights you felt comfortable? No. When I first fought in America, um, I fought Alicia Napoleon over in New York. And I went up to super middleweight, but I wasn't really a super, I literally just went into super middleweight weight class division by about a pound, <laughs> you know, and, um, but she was quite a small super middleweight as well, which is why I took the fight. Also, it's a great opportunity for exposure, a chance to fight in America, which is, for me, is amazing. I love fighting in America. You know, there's so many great fights that have happened over there and history of the sport and things. So, you know, for me to fight in America for the first time was amazing. Um, but no, super middleweight is not my division. And then, of course, I fought Clarissa Shields, one of the pound for pound <laughs> greats of our generation. I fought her middleweight, and I'm not a middleweight either. I'm more, I'm my true weight is really super welter, and I can go down to welterweight. So, you know, it was opportunities to go there and test myself against top level fighters and 
I truly believe this and I apply it to my music as well. If you want to be the best, you've got to work with the best. So um, I presume what, if you go to the United States, there's a far bigger pool of fighters for you to fight? Absolutely. There's a lot more girls around the weight class as well. You know, like here in the UK, when I first started out, there was only two of us in the UK, myself and Stacey Copeland. And that was it at Super Welterweight. I mean, how crazy is that? Just two of us. Yeah. You know, so... That, that's massively changed now thankfully women's boxing is hugely on the rise and we see a lot of um, a lot more fighters coming through girls coming from the olympic teams you know it's been a huge kind of uh, shift in popularity for the sport and support as well um so now we're actually getting a decent amount of fighters coming through we're, we're nowhere near what the guys are but we're starting to get there can you sit comfortably at super welterweight or how hard is it for you to to make weight or do you, do you ever just think do you know what i just want a pizza <laughs> do you know what when you're in a 12 week training camp there are definitely times you're thinking oh, i could i could definitely do a pizza <laughs> but um no i i make the weight well i'm very disciplined when it comes to making weight um as far as i'm concerned and i've always said this you know it's 50 percent of my job is to make the weight you're contracted to make a particular weight on a particular day and if you don't make that weight sometimes the fight won't go ahead or you will have to pay money to your opponent so, you know, it's you don't want to do 12 weeks of work for the fight to not happen because you couldn't make the weight on the scales. And it must have been great to, to when you made history, when uh, you became the first Scottish female world champion, to do it in front of a home crowd. But is yeah. there an added pressure? Is it almost easier to go away and, and be the outsider? Um, to be honest, it, that was probably one of my most stressful nights of my life because um, <laughs> I, I fought in Norway by then. I fought in um, America, you know. And I think fighting in front of my home crowd was something that added a little bit of pressure because I knew a lot of people in the audience. There's a lot of my family, of my friends. I could see everybody. And actually on the night, there was a very special moment, which kind of threw me a little bit before I went out to the ring. And all of the young fighters, the young kids that go to the Kinnick Boxing Gym in Glasgow, at that point, they almost did like a guard of honour for me for my walkout. They oh, all stood there as I walked out. And it really caught me. I wasn't expecting them to do it, you know, and I suddenly realized that all these little people are looking up to me to become world champion. And that was a moment, a real realization moment, you know, and uh, I remember it really, really clearly. Can you take animosity into the ring or does that go back to what you were talking about earlier that you no, have so, to be more tactical? To be on your best, you need to be cool, calm and calculated they always say you never do your best work fighting if you're angry or you're upset or you're over emotional because if you're over emotional then you'll rush to do things that you wouldn't normally do that's when you make your mistakes and okay. if your opponent's more calm and, and reassured that they'll they'll take that opportunity to land their shots and do everything they need to do so if you're not calm then you're not going to be able to execute your game plan you're not going to be able to you know, be, do what you need to do and deal with any sort of stresses in the ring. Well, how do you control your nerves? Have you ever tried meditation or yoga? I don't do yoga. Um, I'd like to, I'd like to like yoga. Yeah. <laughs> I'd, I'd, like, I'd like to enjoy it. I'd like to be able to go and do it, but I'm very, very fidgety and hyperactive and I've got a little bit of ADHD. So I find 
that I get kind of fixated on trying to get the, the movements correct and do them the best I can when actually it's something, you know, you need to practice for years and years and years. So I get quite competitive with it. And I'm sure that's not what you're meant to be doing with yoga. <laughs> so um, I do a lot of visualization techniques, a lot of uh, mental preparation, uh, you know, like I have a great team around me to do that with. And I think all top level athletes work with sports psychologists and okay. um, do mental training. Um, visualization is such an important thing and it's something I've actually brought over from my music side straight into the boxing world because I visualized lots of concerts that I did um, millions of times you know and it's how I prepare to do a solo concert and same thing for you know an orchestral concert as well so it's important to be able to actually use this technique Um, but also when you said meditation there I do use different types of meditation for breathing techniques so, you know, before I start a fight, I'll do three deep breaths to control my heart rate, calm my mind, get ready to go, all that sort of thing. Do you still do long runs? Does that help mentally? Does that <laughs> kind of clear the brain a bit? I love to run. Running is my downtime. It's the time that I use to clear my head. It's the time I use to, what I'm in training camp, to visualize my fights, yeah. visualize opportunities, the things that are going to happen. Like they come in and they actually, they're very, they knock me down in the first round. How do I come back from that? Or I visualize, I knock them out in the first round. You know, it's running is for me, it's like my therapy. It's something that I really enjoy. Um, but a lot of boxers don't enjoy running, ironically. Um, a lot of them use it to make weight. So for me, I'm very blessed to find that I can actually use it to actually enjoy it. If you're a Scot in London and up against it, in Scots Care, you've got a friend. Now you, you spoke about a 12-week training camp. And this, this question is from my friend Neil, and he's a, a former England weightlifting champion. Wow. And he, he wanted to talk to you about, uh, is there a maximum amount of time that you can hold that peak fitness? Yes. So, I mean, 12 weeks there was a couple of weeks was pre-camp work. So we're working on sort of like working on strength work and, and things like that just prior to actually starting the training camp um but yeah there is a there's a limited time and it's not actually it's physically you will be always more you can always do more than you think you can it's mentally it's how you it's peaking is really mental for me i think it's like you've got to get to that point where you're just you're ready to fight you know so my world title training camps usually around about 10 10 to 12 weeks um and it, that's really down to your coach you know how well they know you how much you can put like step on the gas push forward or if you need to hold it back a little bit and um, there's all that side of it which I'm always amazed at how well they manage to judge it because you just peaking at the right point is so important and mm. it's that point when you get in the ring and you're like buzzing you're ready to go you're full of energy and you know all the hard work is done and you're just ready to unleash it all yeah the, and I watched your last fight against Terry Harper and that, that oh, yeah. was great you, you were buzzing there but then then I went oh my lord when you you had your eye cut quite badly yeah. I mean, what was it? What was it at the edge of her glove or her head? What hit you? Well, it was deemed a punch. Um, but I think personally, I thought it was an elbow. But, you know, it is it is what it is. The referee said it was a punch. So, you know, it was about seven or eight stitches after the fight. It's the first time I've ever been cut ever in, in 18 professional fights. Wow. And of course, I'd have to do it in my, my world title defense, you know. So if you're going to do something, do it well. My mom always used to say so. <laughs> Yeah, um, it was in the second round and it opened up and uh, yeah, it was just, it caused a lot of um, 
things I never had to deal with before. Um, so I didn't really get to execute my game plan the way I wanted to. And even when I started to, you know, uh, catch up with her in the later rounds, because we always knew she'd be ahead by halfway. She's got great footwork, fantastic um, combination punching, you know. So I knew she'd be ahead, but I was going to catch up with her in the later rounds. But it just, um, as I managed to get there and, you know, score some damaging shots and things, I wasn't able to capitalise on it. So I just, I just couldn't see very well. So, yeah, you know, you live and you learn and it's the first time I've ever been cut. So now I know going forward what that's going to be like. Do you worry about getting hit on the head? No. Okay. No, no. <laughs> no. Do, do you worry about getting hit on the chest? No. no. Because it- I think you in boxing, it's, fight, it's a fight at the end of the day. And um, if you're going in there worrying about being hit in any way particular, you're more likely to get hit, like I said earlier, and you're not likely to be able to do the work that you need to do to win the fight. So I don't worry about these things. And and also equally, I'm, you know, my the British Boxing Board of Control is one of the safest boards in the world. Uh, So, you know, we have to do tests every year. We get an MRI every year. We get medicals done every year. And obviously after this fight, for me, with the cut and things, you know, I've got a suspension. I'm not allowed to, to fight, you know, obviously, but like things have got to heal. I've got to get checked by a doctor and things like that. So, you know, these things are taken into consideration. I, I watched an interview with uh, the cyclist Geraint Thomas. Yeah. And he was he was talking about sacrifice and he was saying he actually, he you know, he's talking about he mentioned Christmas dinners and birthday parties and nights out with friends that he has he has missed over the yeah. course of his his cycling career how much sacrifice personal sacrifice has there been for you in that kind of way definitely i think all fighters will say when it comes to sacrificing things the things that we have to miss the family events uh you know weddings birthdays you know just social events that you miss as a fighter is very hard you know because there's so many times in my family where i want to be there um, but I, I can't be there because I'm in the middle of training camp. And, uh, you know, it's just also equally, you know, personal things like, you know, it's uh, tragedies in the family and stuff like that. That sort of mental strain as well is actually very hard to deal with when you're trying to focus on a fight because you need to be fully focused on what you're doing. So often if there's anything going on in the family and stuff, my family will message Noel, my coach, okay. to let him know. And he'll let he'll decide whether or not I need to know about it until later on. Because, yeah, there's things like that which could really throw you at it. And ultimately, that puts you at risk as a fighter because then you're not able, you're worrying about something else instead of what you should be doing. You mentioned female boxing now hitting a much bigger stage. And it is when I, when I watched the Katie Taylor and Amanda Serrano um, fight, yeah. it was 19,000 people. Incredible. And it was a $1 million purse. Has this made a difference to your lifestyle? Have your wedges skyrocketed? Are you you know, now training in Monaco and driving a Bentley? <laughs> um, no. So basically, um, the Katie Taylor Amanda Serrano fight was incredible. A huge step forward for women's boxing. And also for boxing as a whole, it was a fantastic fight. You know, you, everybody was raving at how great it was. They sold out Madison Square Garden. It was incredible. And I was really lucky that my headline fight, the Hydra, was two weeks later because women's boxing was just booming and everyone was talking about it. So, you know, it really gave like support to my fight as well um money wise we're nowhere near what the guys are earning that's just facts at the moment and the money is rising 
And I'm now at a stage of my career as a world, like, you know, as a former world champion, um, three times world champion to be, um, you know, it's an op- there's opportunities there for me to get more sort of financial security from sponsorship because people actually want to sponsor women's boxing these days. When I first started out, my coach would phone like the traditional uh, sort of building or scaffolding companies and say, I've got this great boxer, she, and they're like, oh, we don't, we don't like women's boxing. You know, so now that's really changed. So you can get a lot more support from other things, but the purses are nowhere near what the guys are getting. It's just uh, things will have to catch up a little bit. And I think that will change when we get maybe 12 twos or if we get three minute rounds. Yeah. You know, I think that's the, the last stumbling block. But, you know, when we're getting there and every time I get in the ring and, and do stuff, I'm always pushing for fairer, fairer prices for us. Can you pinpoint one thing that drives you? Would it be the achievement the titles the the fame the cash is there is there anything that you could say one thing or is it a mixture of all of them um i think it's a, a mixture of a few things um one i'm incredibly competitive with myself um i you know i've always been like that whatever i'm going to do if i if i want to do something i'll go 100% at it you know it's a that's just how i work um secondly i think the loss of my mum gave me a sort of inspiration to do as much as I can do whilst I'm here because tomorrow is never promised. And, um, you know, being able to go out there and achieve this as a fighter in, in my later year, like later than most people will be able to do it is, is incredible. And probably lastly is I, w- I want to be sort of like a role model to people who, you know, who maybe think, they want to change their career at a later date. You know, I didn't start boxing until I was halfway through my twenties. So, you know, that was a very late start for me, but it was a passion of mine. And I thought, you know what? I love this. I want to do this. So that's where I've got, I've gone into it. And for those younger girls coming through, especially young Scottish girls, because, you know, there's not very many of us in boxing in in Scotland. I want to inspire next generation to see that how Hannah Rankin, she became our first female world champion. She headlined at the Hydro. That's a, possibility for me that's something that I can follow a path that I can do so and boxing is a career path that is now open to me as a, as a young girl so yeah I think that's that's pretty much what drives me because I know every time I get in boxing ring, there's lots of little little people and and older looking at me to see what I'm going to do like especially as obviously having lost my last fight you know I know a lot of people are waiting to see how I react to this and how I come back and yeah you know what I'm going to do next and I'm a very resilient person. I know this about myself. It's probably one of my uh, good attributes. Um, so for me, I can't wait to get back in the ring next year and uh, get back on the horse and get back to where I know I belong as a world champion, you know, but hopefully that inspires younger people to, to you know, follow their dreams and, you know, push themselves to try new things. And are you rooted in the here and now or do you do you ever take time out and think life after boxing? <laughs> well, Obviously, when I'm fighting, I have to be in the moment. <laughs> but uh, I'm very lucky, actually, to um, experience the opportunity of actually doing commentary much earlier in my career than I actually ever thought I would. I thought it's not something that would come to me until after I retired. Yeah. But um, I've been very blessed to have the opportunities to work in with Sky Sports, with BBC, um, all of these places. So uh, for me, I think for me, I'd like to go into a commentary career after after I retire from boxing. That's something I'd like to do. Um, I do quite a lot of public speaking at the moment, working with the health and wellness groups, uh, an ambassador for a boxing charity. So these are sort of areas that I probably would aim to be involved in when I retire. 
I think the final question I would ask you might be a difficult one for you, Hannah, but if you could meet your 17-year-old Hannah, is there anything you would say to her now looking back? Oh, you're still a young woman. What age are you now? Uh, 32 now. Oh, you're, yeah, only 32. You know, if, <laughs> if you could meet 17-year-old Hannah, is there any advice you'd give her? Anything you would have changed in that path? To be honest, probably not, because everything I've done has got me to where I am now. Mm. And the way that I always approach things was, oh, give it a go, see where you end up. Because I, I'm that kind of person, I always uh, take an opportunity that's given to me and see what happens, because it takes you some into some amazing places. But 17-year-old me, I'd probably say there's great things to come. Brilliant. And, you know, you know, just keep doing what you're doing and be yourself. Hannah, thanks for chatting to me today. Thank you so much for having me. Speak to you later. Tati bye. Cheers, bye. Scott's Care. Working to make London life better for Scots and their children.